from India's largest newsroom I'm Arun George and this is the Times of India podcast Anish first saw Sumitra at the basement office of Mainstream at Connaught Place in New Delhi Anish was from Deoria in Uttar Pradesh Sumitra was from Chikmagalur in Karnataka. He was Muslim, she was Hindu. After a courtship in Delhi, they were married in a nikah ceremony. Both worried about how their families would react. And then they lived out the rest of their lives. There were no protests against the marriage. Anis hadn't violated any laws and didn't face the risk of jail. After all, it was 1966. decades before states would enact laws that could present objections to their marriage the couple are the subject of a new book titled sumitra and anis tales and recipes from a khichdi family by their daughter author and journalist seema jishti it's part memoir and part recipe book we caught up with seema to talk about what motivated her to write the story of a brief period in her parents lives the challenges they faced and why food is such an important tool to divide and unite people seema this is easily one of the shortest memoirs one could write about their parents to some degree um is there a big is there a reason you stuck to a very limited portion of your parents lives as a couple or as individuals because it's not even like they seem to have led very boring lives i wanted to kind of make this very clear but i didn't because i suppose that would be more words it's a very limited slice of their lives you've put it very well and i was wary of this even becoming memoirs either of mine or of my parents because of all the other things that comprise their lives and my lives but i thought it was just a very important slice of their existence and their choices which were of extreme relevance now so i i think it comes from the sort of person that i am or rather my relationship with personal information how much of it should be political was forced upon me almost by the kind of environment and yes you're absolutely right it's is probably the shortest memoir of a of a of a one decision that they both took that i thought i need to present to the world like this with your father's story uh, one one thing that kind of stuck out for me was the fact that you mentioned multiple instances of where his family had doubts about living in post partition india and how at every stage there was someone to sort of reassure them could you talk about how those instances played out and the kind of effect it had on him and his family so my father was like very young he was 7 years old when india was partitioned so i think he kind of was party to all the decisions that were taken by his parents i think my grandfather who's a lawyer and who was kind of a lead player and an influencer in the chishti decision if you like to not leave the area or that side of the family to leave india was very firm and clear about this there are a whole lot of other incidents that we heard as family folklore which perhaps i should have included there are small things like um he was like really opposed to any um, you know hangama at shadis and barats etc and he was a real nationalist but the when his eldest daughter was getting married the boy's side insisted that they'll get a band with the barat and my grandfather was horrified and sarojini naidu had died that year he said look sarojini naidu has died this year and there's no way you're bringing a band in this city so the other side was like quite stunned by this but that was my grandfather so he wasn't really a kind of a freedom fighter etc but very kind of woven in with the idea of living where he was and very much a man of his times in composite india and fully confident of being here 
I think there were others in the family who raised doubts. And as he was kind of part of a much larger brood, if you like, uh, some people took this decision to leave. And there are many other stories of people who were who went unwillingly because their children went or siblings went and they were forced to go there because of material conditions or it was just thought right that you need to go. So I think I've kind of delved into that because it was actually a very real question for a lot of people who weren't living in Punjab or Bengal. It was it was a decision to be made. So they chose India. So I don't think they had doubts about it. So I think that was a question that that did raise uh, that did raise its head in all perhaps Western Indian Muslim families at that time. And of course, as you would understand that events of 19, of 2019 and 2020 have given it a kind of new urgency and, and um, have, have lent a new edge to that question and the answers that uh, Muslim families that took uh, that decision then in, uh, to stay back in India. I like how it shows that these are families who chose it and almost stood by it in some ways and, and were abetted and aided by, by their own neighbours, by their own uh, friends and ensured that they were comfortable living here in a way. That's correct. And I, I also want to take away this kind of very uh, boring story, this romantic, oh, there's some Hindu, but you know, all aren't like that. That's not true, because this is actually the shared and lived reality of millions of Muslim households and their neighbours. And uh, so even in, in, in all that blood, mayhem and disaster, as we can now imagine, were, and of course, there, as we know now, that there was no certainty of a partition happening, say in 1943, 1944. It was all very chaotic, very uncertain, and terrible. But in those times also, you actually had people living by. So, which was another kind of impetus. The whole book is intended to actually show it up, though it kind of deals with romance at the center of it, and there's love and all of that, a love story. But actually, it's about a very real part of what happened in India, which of course you could argue is romance at its best. But it's actually about a very difficult decision that people had to take. And these are very hard-lived realities of coexistence that India opted for and executed. Um, with your parents' story, one other thing that struck out for me was the fact that there was also this very clear fear of objection from their families that never actually came for either of them because people almost went out of their way to make them feel part of their families, in a sense. Could you talk about that? And how do you see that having changed? Okay, so uh, I think my mother did not have immediate family in terms of, you know, her parents were dead. She was like orphaned. So uh, she had a brother who was highly accommodating, doting, and he was also unconventional in his own way. I mean, he came from the cinema world and all that. So that may have given him a little bit more legroom, if you like, to accept Sumitra's decisions. And in any case, Sumitra had broken so many barriers, though, of course, this is usually considered the final frontier, you know, uh, where no man shall ever go, like, don't get married to a Muslim. But uh, I think they, they, they were more accepting in that sense, more uh, accommodating of that decision. In Anisa's case, there was more kind of um, uh, telling the family about it and all that. And because, you know, his parents were alive, he had sisters and uh, he was more kind of, he had more kind of immediate family. And there they had a, a bit of cajoling if you like and a bit of work had to be done on the families 
everything's out there on the table, open outside your house. That business was not there then. So I think that that general restraint in how you conducted yourself was broadly present, if I may say so. Of course, there were other acts of uh, over-the-top acts taking place even then as they are now. But it was a little more restrained was the general norm. Number two, families and neighbors, uh, etc. were not assisted by either volunteer members or militias or uh, a state which did not want this to happen. The state allowed it to happen and created the 1954 Special Marriage Act to enable this to happen. So the context in which social conservatism uh, operated or the allies it found outside the family were limited. So I think the potential to make trouble was less and it was not aided and abetted by the world around you. I think that was a key difference. Back in the appendix, there are these two letters I ran into, one which my uncle had written to my father, that is his brother-in-law, and one which my grandfather wrote to his uh, uh, bahu, my mother. And that was also just reading those makes it clear as to what the world was. So it's not as if they would have got all their remaining people married out here and there, but they had the ability to kind of see and accept it. And the world outside did not egg them on, urge them to file cases. And that enabling environment for divisiveness did not exist in that sense as it does perhaps today. Also, do you feel like there was an aspiration towards a sort of higher ideal among people? Like for me, the story about your father being almost forced to perform namaz while his Hindu, Hindu <laughs> in-laws kind of stand outside a mosque waiting for him was, was amazing in some ways, right? Because they are enforcing almost his religion when he himself is not keen on doing it. And that's almost coming from a place where you're sort of aspiring to be that sort of best person, which I, you sometimes wonder if people think about anymore. It starts off by people trying to be better than what they were or trying to kind of extend. So this whole thing in India about Hamari Aisa Hota hai. But in their house, you know, our neighbors are not like that. They are like this, but it's okay. You see in our popular culture, etc. You know, the fact that you accept that, you know, tolerant, quote unquote, was kind of, uh, it's a terrible word and there are issues there. But, you know, broadly what it conveys is, as you're saying, you know, to stand on your toes and rise a little higher about above who you are and your immediate circumstances and your thing of birth. And also, I think the big shift that is happening now, which is worrying, is that the whole business of day-to-day interaction, contact, and everywhere they came together was seen as a point of confluence. My customers are are Muslim, or my uh, my landlord is a Hindu, or uh, so and so my classmate is a Christian, or my teacher is uh, is a Jew, or whatever was meant to be a sign of being, as you're saying, maybe more uh, cosmopolitan, more kind of accepting. That seems to have gone away because now what we find is, and which is why I also invoke in the Shamshan and the Kabristan, like we were always told that you know you're you're united and you're one when you meet your maker or when you come onto the planet, but if that is also sought to be a point of contestation, difference, hate, division, then you have, uh, it comes to a point of really pushing for a societal breakdown. And I think that's what we kind of risk now. It's probably not uh, cool in a lot of circles to say that you're accepting and that you aspire to be bigger than your lottery of birth or where you were born in. The one problem that your parents faced, which many people face even now, was getting a house on rent because they were (laughs) an interfaith couple. And that's still very true. 
That's absolutely right. And I remember being with them on if one of those things. And God knows how many houses we've shifted. And that used to be a factor. And I would get very annoyed and very embarrassed with my dad because he would start his whole thing with, I am a Bihari Muslim married to a Kannadiga Hindu. And I would just like say, why do you call yourself a Bihari Muslim? You're not, you know, he said, no, no, no. Because the stereotype is of a Bihari Bangladeshi Muslim. I said, but you're not Bihari. He said, no, no, but I'm from East UP. So I want there, I want there to be total clarity on this. And I would get quite kind of distressed by that. But they would have these experiences of people then either, uh, you know, shying away and saying, oh, you know, we don't eat that kind of thing. And the incident that I described, which happened with them having given the keys and then realized that he spelt his name Anis and not Anish, as they thought. And they were very distressed. And they thought he'd continue to stay. And he said, nothing doing. I'm not interested in staying. And he went back and canceled everything. So yes, I think housing is uh, is very interesting and distressing and it happens across uh, cultures. I mean, ghettoization is not something new to India, but the fact that we are getting into extreme kind of ghettoized situations takes away the whole promise and offer of urban life because urban life is meant to anonymize you and meant to kind of allow you to be who you are and to start a new I think it kind of just uh, narrows down the options for um, coexistence, being together, and your uh, whatever ascribed identity or the identity you've been born into. I think it's kind of gotten much worse because you can be the best executives, you can be really high earning, but the chances are that you will be living in the ghetto. With Sumitra's case, one thing you do point to the fact is that she agreed to a nikah more out of almost convenience than really yeah. out of a thing of faith. Um, could you talk about how your parents handled this sort of intersection of faiths and did it help that they were overtly religious? Yeah, I think it really helped because, you know, there was no dispute really about how kids are to be brought up and all that. So I think a whole interfaith uh, romantic exercise can go awry if, uh, you know, if there is a strong pull of how children are to be brought up, strong preferences about um, how things are to be conducted. And or sometimes, of course, dietary issues can also be a breaking uh, point. I do know of couples who, uh, you know, live with vegetarian, non-vegetarian kind of differences. They are quite happy to live with that and also of faith. But yes, mummy was very uh, clear that, though you know, she was also uh, called Sumera by some people in my father's family. She answered to that. But she always remained uh, Professor Sumitra Chishti. So I did ask her that, you know, why do you have a nikah and all that? She said, because I couldn't care less. And uh, some of her friends did try and tell her that, you know, why are you getting into a nikah and they can marry three times afterwards? She said, look, you know, if he has to go away or we decide to part ways, it'll be over in any case. So I think she was um, quite clear about those things and, you know, didn't really care to hoots either way about what happened. And I frankly, neither did my father. So if my mother, I, I suspect if she had made it a sticking point, he would have had a civil marriage also. He was not particularly religious, but they were not irreligious in ways that um, I was brought up uh, perfectly confused about it. I was never I was never taught irreligion, if you know what I mean. It was always left open for me to choose, which was a different proposition from kind of two atheists coming together. They, they weren't that. They even refused to discuss their relationship with God with me, even later in life. And I was older and I would ask them, but they were actually both and neither in ways. So you're right that that did make it easier. So it, it's not as if the barriers are insurmountable, but I think there would be different questions in case people were very firm about uh, faith and what is to be done and how things are to go ahead. How do you view the laws that have come up 
across states that set up higher walls for couples to jump across in order to be together i think it's kind of really distressing and for me it's really a canary in a coal mine of the kind of india that we want so it would be perhaps childish to say that the state should uh, encourage union the business of encouraging interracial intercaste or interreligious unions india is not in that kind of progressive mode right now and as we know despite the special marriage act existing and before these terrible laws came in the number of interreligious marriages is not more than 2.5% even for intercaste it is 13% and that's also low because i don't think that is dalits marrying across to non dalits that may be uh, marriages happening within a uh, caste which are deemed as savarnao so the, you know our record in terms of our social record is quite um, grim on that but i think what these laws do is take this whole social conservatism to another level because they make it almost not just barriers a prison sentence awaits you in case somebody can dress it up as a criminal case and especially if if the sc community is involved and women of a certain religion are involved is kind of rigged to make it near impossible and to deem it a criminal act so i think what's happening in india right now is like really dangerous because what it does is it just uh, it just closes the door on a certain kind of interaction and sends a message which is very grim and it's not as if uh, everybody needs to have an interreligious marriage to prove a point or for india to continue to be secular but how the state looks at interreligious unions tells us a lot about what it thinks of democracy and uh, a lot about coexistence and given those kind of standards the prognosis for indian democracy looks very grim because of these laws so i don't think they are just kind of marriage laws but they tell us about what the state would like the direction it would like our democracy to go into so uh, it fills me with a lot of dread these uh, these acts in eight states that criminalize uh, interreligious unions and send a bad signal for india's uh, plural democracy one more thing that i have to confess is that i really like the recipes only because of the <laughs> remarkable simplicity of them and yeah. the one thing that strikes me about them is these older recipe books are very cut and dry what yeah. was the idea behind having such a long list of recipes well actually this is for twitches because mummy had kind of as and as she says in her introduction to the recipe book she'd written it three times and i was kind of the loser that i was i literally that i had actually misplaced the book she doesn't mention that and she was a fantastic cook so she wanted to leave behind basic household but highly yummy uh, recipes behind for her daughter to be able to just go into the kitchen and cook without making too much of a fuss or becoming too much of this kitchen diva which she knew i wouldn't be and i was like highly impatient but yet wanting to eat the very good rasam or or korma or whatever so she left all these things behind and she was actually quite keen that you know maybe you should publish this sometime you know when i told this story and i thought that this recipe book is also sitting here and it's also such a statement on a day in the life of a mixed couple so it's not i mean i see a lot of very fancy recipe books coming up now but this was a like a very regular thing but it was still kind of captured the flavors of some very important diverse sections of india which she had picked up so i thought it would be a good idea to uh, to speak of food and of a kitchen which accommodated many tastes um as an important facet of the uh, plural living accommodation that i was trying to talk about through you know their marriage too so- i mean it's an anecdote from the book where your mother kind of talks about how she can handle meat and she goes to 
your father's house for birthday <laughs> and, and fiends because it's not what she expected in some ways like because but but it's also that she had the comfort where she felt like she could deal with other people's food and food has become this intensely political topic at least in our time intensely political um why do you think food is such a uniting and such a divisive factor at the current time so i think what the phase we are going through of communalism or change in india is like trying to drill down to our very basics trying to change who we are as people when you want to twist the common sense of a person how else do you reach out to them except through their loved ones you know you get into their whatsapps you you know you contest the food they eat i think any politics which is trying to uh fundamentally alter the sense of india will have these kinds of television debates that we have now so the evening drawing room conversations are different uh, what you regard as uh, the common truths or the accepted notions will change and uh, if you can the more of trading ties the more of commonalities that you can hit at makes it easier for me to push for a idea of separateness and i think the kitchen food choices unite people so even earlier you've seen how biryani is brought up i still remember the special prosecutor in the case of ajmal kasab brought yes. up him asking for biryani and he confessed and he said no i just made that up because it is such a such shorthand for hate that you can divide people on that if i'm easy with my child marrying a jew or a or a, a dalit or a muslim or a hindu uh, and i'm okay with food and i share bonds of food and cinema and culture and music then that makes it much harder to kind of separate me into separate peoples so i think food is elemental for that so therefore you need to hit it food uh, to uh, to break those bonds if a political project wishes to drive home separateness as the driving quality one more thing for me in the book is what comes across with your parents is a very strong sense of aspiration and hope in almost everything they do uh, did they i know it's not in the book but did they ever talk about how they viewed india towards the end of their lives oh yeah they spoke a lot about it so they were really beginning to get worried about what was going on and uh, the india that they kind of died in particularly my father did not give him much room for uh, optimism or rose and uh, sunshine but they were not the kind of people i mean my father particularly was always opposed to the kind of exceptionalism that uh, our generation kind of ascribes to the times we living through in india saying that look it was never fully easy and brilliant earlier too so don't keep thinking that you know yours are the worst times so all generations go through their challenges and uh, this these are these are the challenges that these people have to face but uh, having said that they did recognize the exceptional challenge that india does face and especially my father my mother died earlier than that though even she had some grim things to uh, say about um, uh, certain right wing forces and their impact on india and that concerned her a lot but um, they they were averse to seeing it as a final kind of a you know oh that's it now india's doomed kind of thing so they, they didn't have that but they always thought that things could be changed and these were challenges people had to face generations had to face and people had had to take on and improve and progress was something which was literally a work in progress and needed to be built upon continuously on a on a running basis you couldn't possibly sleep on the job
Today's episode was produced by Jairaj Singh, Sunay Marathe and Anuja Singh. For a daily spotlight on people, ideas and stories that matter, subscribe to us. We're available on TY Plus, Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts and all other platforms of your choice. For any news tips, email us at typodcast at timesinternet.in.